Good morning, everybody. Let's just be still for a moment and let's uh, pray together. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word as our guide, our inspiration, that you yourself are our motivation. So please be with us as we look together at your word. Encourage us in this wonderful uh, ability to give and help us to give our whole selves to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Tom. Uh, well, when Tom invited me to, to preach on this, our gift day, he specifically said, I'd really love to hear something of the story that lies behind these wonderful buildings that we're privileged to worship in and that we use to serve the, uh, the local community. So I've got to spend, I'm asked to, uh, a few minutes just telling you a little bit about that. And of course, it goes back a long, long way. I mean, Tom, you're always saying over these past eight months what a tremendous sense of, of privilege you feel at being here and leading a church which has been blessed by God so much over the years and where people are really looking forward still to what God is going to do in the future. And I echo that wholeheartedly from my leadership of Emmanuel from, what, 1970 uh, through to the millennium, 32 years. And that has gone on since, and we are still a church blessed by God and looking forward. Uh, that, that's not to say we're all saints in, in the wrong sense of the word. I mean, this isn't the perfect church by any means, partly because you and I belong to it. And you know the old adage, you know, if you find the perfect church, for goodness sake, don't join it, because that's what's going to spoil it. But behind these buildings, there is undoubtedly a a long, long story of sacrificial giving by people year after year after year. Back in 1970, we had a, a, a hut alongside the church, a, a, a hall alongside the church. Behind it was a wooden hut, which had had temporary planning permission about 50 years before, was still in use, shouldn't have been, and uh, we had children's meetings in, in the hall, and in that hut, in every downstairs room in the vicarage. Uh, we put up a porter cabin in the, what was a sort of car park there. Uh, we had children absolutely everywhere and we were bursting at the seams. And uh, we said we really needed to do something. And I remember saying, well, um, the first thing we've got to do is pull that hut down and put something else there. And I then went off for a week. I was leading a university mission somewhere. And I came back, and to my astonishment, the hut was in the process of being demolished. And I thought, this is a wonderful church. It really is. You know, you just say something almost off the cuff, and it jolly well happens. And we then proceeded to put up a prefabricated building, which many of you remember, at the end of the hall with quite a number of rooms. And that was at a cost of £20,000. Uh, if we hadn't done that, I don't think we could possibly have even contemplated um, these buildings and the, the two massive projects that lay ahead. Um, the cost of these buildings put together is about, was about two and a half million. In today's money, that would be between five and six million. So that gives you an idea of the colossal task that lay ahead. And we took a deep breath and we made, prayed lots of prayers and we committed ourselves to the project. Um, two phases with 
quite a long time in between and a, a process of 16 to 20 years in total. And the PCC is the body that made all of the decisions, but um, we kept trying to keep the church totally informed all the way through. I remember meeting very, very early on um, when we had an open discussion with the church and people stood up and they spoke for and against and made some adjustments and said which we should do first and all the rest of it. Um, there was very, very courteous difference of view, difference of opinion. And two things stood out for me about that meeting. One is immediately afterwards, one of the people who'd spoken against it handed me a cheque for 5,000 pounds. And the other was that a man I'd been praying for for quite a long time came up to me and said, I want you to know I've just given my life to Christ. And I said, what, tonight? <laughs> I said, this was, a, in a sense, a business meeting about practical things. I mean, you've heard the gospel loads of times. He said, yeah, and I, and I was already convinced. But it was actually seeing the, feeling the atmosphere and seeing the way people put different points of view, but in a genuine spirit of respect and of love. And that's what prompted him to give his life to Christ. The, the prefabricated building that we put up was where the, uh, the Emmanuel Playgroup started and it morphed into the preschool and now into Little Stars. So it's been an amazing story. And people did incredible things. I mean, they postponed buying cars or moving house, they took in lodgers, um, they auctioned the various skills and gifts they had and uh, you know, sold them off to people. And, and it was amazing, really, what people did. And we, I remember, all of our girls were at university and we coxed and boxed with their rooms. So while they were away, we immediately moved in Surrey students as our lodgers. And people did all kinds of things. And there was committed giving because we believed that direct giving was the only way. We were the people who believed that God was calling us to do it, and that was the task that was our responsibility. Uh, it wasn't just the giving and the sort of bricks and mortar. The builders were people we somehow developed a really good relationship with. Um, if you, everybody felt that this was a special project, and there was a sense of pride when you spoke to any of them. If you were to climb up inside um, the very top of this roof inside, you'll find the signatures of all the carpenters who worked on the building. And they said, most of our lives are spent working on you know, houses, schools, offices, whatever. There's something very special about this. But it was more than that. It was the relationship with people. Uh, just before Christmas, I remember saying, you know, you've got to down tools for a couple of hours. We're preparing a special Christmas dinner for you with all the trimmings. And when we had the celebration opening to the church, we invited everybody who'd been involved in the building. I've never seen this place so crowded. The screen was open. There were chairs right the way back in the old church and everywhere was absolutely crowded because we invited all the people who'd been involved. I remember... Uh, um, a man who was on a holiday in Scotland, who actually came down for the celebration evening. Uh, incredible things that, that actually happened. And then the tokens continued. Quite a number of people involved in the project came to Christ, including, incidentally, our main architect. And the change in him was remarkable. Um, I remember a man knocking on my door two years after it all happened. 
and saying, well, I just wanted to you to know that I'm now a Christian. And it all started a couple of years ago here. So it was the relationships with people. We had a wonderful opening celebration evening. At the end of it, you know, um, everybody had gone home. I was here with the church wardens doing last minute clearing up. All the doors were open, the lights were full on, and a couple came in, a middle-aged couple. And the bloke was a bit surly, and he said, I've watched this monstrosity going up over the years when I've been driving by. He said, um, doors were open, I thought I'd look in. So I said, yeah, have a look around. And uh, he went off, and his wife said, there's something special about this place. It reminds me of a church we visited, and she said this to her husband afterwards as well, uh, which had an atmosphere in Scandinavia. But she said it, it's something more than that. She said, I've really been wanting to find God for a long time. And you know, that meant more to me than the evening of celebration we'd had before, because that's what this was all about. It was never just bricks and mortar. It was all about enabling us to worship more, to know Jesus better, and enabling us to serve our community better to make him better known. And we wanted people to come to a living faith in Jesus. And that's what has been happening over the years. That's what we pray will continue to happen. Well, 2 Corinthians uh, 8 is the passage we're meant to be looking at. And our, our subject for this morning is uh, generous church. And uh, one or two things I want to say that stand out from this passage and really right the way through the New Testament. The first thing is that there's no doubt that generous giving was a really prominent feature in the life of the early church. It's a context for what Paul says here, and he devotes two whole chapters to the subject of giving. Um, the first Christians didn't always get it right completely. There are some who are quite critical of that early experiment in Christian communism, I suppose you'd call it, when they sold their goods and possessions and came and uh, laid them at the apostles' feet, do you remember? Um, and some people say, well, that was at least a slight contributing factor to the poverty that the church in Jerusalem later experienced. Well, perhaps it was a minor one, but there were more serious ones. Um, a major one was the persecution that broke out in Jerusalem. Um, do you remember where Luke writes about it in Acts chapter 8. Uh, there was this persecution where the whole church was scattered, it says, except the apostles. So they stayed behind in Jerusalem. The growth of the church was really everybody else, not the apostles, getting on with uh, just chatting and talking around the Roman world as they traveled. So the church in Jerusalem experienced huge persecution, was very small. It included the leaders, was mainly Jewish, um, so there was the persecution, and there was something else. There was a, there was a huge famine. Um, the place where many people were scattered to initially was a place called Antioch, which incidentally is where uh, they were first called Christians, you remember. And Antioch is Antakya in modern Syria, uh, which, is, which has been so much in the news over these weeks uh, because of the earthquakes, and uh, with over 50,000 people in the area killed, and uh, what is it, 1.2 million still homeless, and many others injured. Um, it was in Antioch 
that the people were first called Christians. It was in Antioch that an, the first sort of New Testament prophet, in a way, a man called Agabus, stood up and he said, uh, there's going to be a famine over the whole Roman world. And Luke adds the comment, this happened while Claudius was uh, in power. He was the emperor. And that was, incidentally, exactly the time that Paul was writing this second letter to the Corinthians. So it's here that he picks up the theme of the prominence of generous giving in the early church. And incidentally, it was Antioch that, uh, uh, where Saul and Barnabas first went to encourage the Christians. And to remember, among other things, when Paul had been to Jerusalem and met with the leaders, They'd said to him, you know, we agree that you should go to the Gentiles, we'll go mainly to the Jews. All we ask of you, they said, is that you continue to remember the poor and you give to them. And Paul adds, and that was the thing I was really eager to do. So it began in Antioch, and then wherever he went, he was making a collection for Jewish people back in Jerusalem, the poor. I could quote you many, many sort of references to that. But wherever he went, he's asking people to set aside money. Um, we're in Corinthians, so at the end of 1 Corinthians, that's what he says to them. He said, I want every single one of you on the first day every week to set aside a sum of money, and when I eventually come, I will collect it and ensure that it goes back to the poor people in Jerusalem. And if you trace the letters through, the number of references to giving throughout is colossal. And really, something we don't often recognize is that wherever Paul went, he not only preached the gospel, he raised money. Now, we're a bit suspicious about that. You know, if people talk from the front of church or from the pulpit about raising money, I mean, it, it sort of smacks of televangelists, doesn't it, you know? Um, trying to squeeze money out of people and we're all suspicious that they're going to spend it on their expensive lifestyles. Well, no. Um, wherever Paul went, he was raising money for the Christians back in Jerusalem. And incidentally, that persecution that I spoke of, of course, in the early days, he'd been part of. Uh, he'd gone around dragging people out of homes and putting them in prison. Um, so I'm sure he felt a degree of guilt about that. I'm sure you know that there was a, a real possibility in the early days that there might be a major split in the church as to whether the, the Jews and the Gentiles would remain separate. The first council that was ever held in Jerusalem was about that issue, and they sent a letter around about it, and there's a lot of theolo theological discussion about why it's important that all the churches be together and you shouldn't have separate ones and discussion about circumcision etc but also Paul through raising money at the practical level quite apart from the theological discussion he was taking money back from Gentiles to give to the Jewish church in Jerusalem and that would have been a help at the practical level as well as trying to sort out the theological discussion about possible division between Jew and Gentile. All of that is the context for what Paul writes here in um, 2 Corinthians. And I mean, he says loads and loads of things, doesn't he? Um, the references to the collections are everywhere. At the end of 1 Corinthians, I've said he writes about setting money aside. 
Um, now, here to the Corinthians, he encourages them in giving. Um, he says that just as you gave before, here it is in verses um, 9 and 10. Um, I think it is, I can't find it now. Um, he says, I'm not commanding you, verse 9, but here is my advice to you. And he wants to encourage them by quoting the example of the Macedonian churches. That's uh, the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, and the church in Berea, where you remember they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. So um, he's encouraged them, encouraging them by pointing to this incredible example of the Macedonian churches. Verses one and two, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And Paul says that's all because they gave themselves first to the Lord. So giving arose out of grace. It was an act of grace, verse 6. And as Paul applauds them in verse 7, saying that they excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and their love for Paul and his companions, he urges them also to see that they excel in this grace of giving. So he's appealing to them, but he's not pressurizing them because he doesn't want them to be, verse 13, hard-pressed. He acknowledges that their willingness to give, uh, verse 11, needs to be according to their means. And verse 12, that the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So add all, all of that up, and what do you get? It's, the, it's clear that giving should be planned, proportionate to income, and should be seen as both an enormous privilege and a genuine priority for Christians. It's not a question of twisting anyone's arm at all. It's a question of understanding where giving belongs in the life of being a Christian. Um, Part of that is that our whole life is transformed and our attitude to money is transformed as well. These people were falling over one another for the privilege of giving as much as they could and more. And the question is, of course, how on earth can we uh, ensure that we are like that? Well, step back a minute and look at the bigger picture that Paul has in mind and that he just touches on here and there in 2 Corinthians. At the start of the argument about the importance of giving, he stresses that it arises from the grace of God. So two aspects of the bigger picture. The first is the God, of course, is the most generous God you can possibly imagine. Peter was talking about this a bit last week. He's a giving God whose generosity knows no bounds. He's given us everything, the world and all that is in it, our life and all that we have. Uh, Paul, say, uh, uh, Paul says in Acts, doesn't he, and when he's preaching in Athens, we, our life and breath and everything is from God. And that's true of every individual life since. 
As the psalmist puts it, children are a gift from the Lord. They are a real blessing. Not only life, but everything we experience and enjoy. 1 Timothy 6, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. There's a lovely uh, reference back in Ecclesiastes where it says, God gives any, when God gives any man wealth and possession and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift from God. Marriage and singleness, gifts from God in 1 Corinthians 7. So all natural gifts are from him. All learned and acquired skills are from him. All creative hobbies that we enjoy are from him. All supernatural gifts, and we were thinking about those the other week, are from him as well. I love a particular character way back in the Old Testament who I think Tom referred to the other week called Bezalel. It says this in Exodus chapter 31. See, I've chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I've filled him with the Spirit of God. What's the result? With skill and ability and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for working gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. So everything that we really enjoy and get lost in is a gift from God. Generous giving is rooted in the very character of God himself. So no wonder when we receive his grace, and grace is the word that Paul uses again and again and again about giving. Whenever we receive, as because we receive his grace, there's been a major change in our whole attitude to money and material things. So generous giving is not only a prominent feature in the early church, it's rooted in the character of God. And the last thing I want to say is that it's wholeheartedly at the center of the ministry of Jesus himself. That's the other ingredient in this bigger picture. Jesus is, of course, God's greatest gift anyway. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If you list the subjects that Jesus taught during his ministry in order of priority, there's no doubt about what comes at the top. It is the kingdom of God. It's what he came to announce, to set up, what he urges us to seek above everything else, to pray for, to work for, to live for, to encourage others to come into as we seek to build it. Uh, we pray, your kingdom come. Uh, Jesus says, you know, don't worry about all the things you need, you know, the clothes you need, the food you need. You know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. That's what we should strive to enter and live for. Number two in the subjects that Jesus talked about, you may be surprised to know, is to do with money. There are loads of stories about it. There are loads of incidents which focus on it. Um, parable of the talents, the workers in the vineyard, the rich young ruler we were talking about recently. Do you remember the dishonored steward whom Jesus commended for his shrewdness? Um, Remember the story of Zacchaeus? He's another character I absolutely love. Short, that's probably why. Um, do you know, there's no Christian conversation whatever in the whole incident with Zacchaeus. Have you noticed that? There's nothing that's said about the gospel, whatever. Um, Jesus just says, I need to come to your house today, Zacchaeus. And I imagine Zacchaeus 
when he's at home and Jesus is there, he pulls himself up to his full height as he makes his incredible declaration. Look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of everything, anything, I'll give back four times as much. Something dramatic has happened to this man. The only thing we see is a changed attitude to money. It's Jesus who makes the theological comment. He says, salvation has come to this house today. Nothing else could explain the change. The most important sermon that Jesus ever preached, he told us not to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. And he adds, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Doesn't say it's difficult, doesn't say it's a struggle. He says it's impossible. You are ruled by one or the other money and material things, or God and his love for us. Simple, binary choice. So there we are, there we have it. Generous giving was a prominent feature in the life of the early church. It's rooted in the character of God. It's central in the ministry of Jesus. And of course, as Paul brings his argument to the summit and its conclusion, he refers to the most wonderful gift of all which is the gift of Jesus as he died on the cross. Yes, his talk about giving was all, was all there right the way through his teaching, but above all, it was there in his life as he gave himself to people and as he gave himself on the cross for us. He says in verse 9, you know the grace, there's the word again, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That's why we're inspired and motivated to give. Paul encourages us by the example of other Christians, the churches in Macedonia. Um, he urges us to follow his example in terms of giving. Above all, he urges us because we are beneficiaries of the most wonderful grace and giving of, of an incredibly generous God in every area of our life. The only response to that is a completely changed attitude to material things. Do you want an acid test of spirituality? It's not how wholeheartedly we pray. It's not how earnestly and sincerely we worship. Jesus gives it to us. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Don't tell me about those other things. Tell me what you do with your money. And that's what shows me where your heart really is. That's a challenge, but it's also a great encouragement, isn't it? We should be the most grateful people on earth because we've received from the most wonderful, generous God that we have. Thank you for listening. We're going to stay seated and I'm going to pray and then I'm going to hand back to, to Tom. Lord God, thank you for your amazing generosity to every single one of us that you have poured out your grace in abundance on us. We thank you with all our heart and we pray that you will help us in some way to give of ourselves as you gave of yourself and to have this totally different attitude towards money and material things. 
We know that can only come about as you touch our lives, and we thank you um, for the assurance that you do and you will. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.